You're listening to a message from Heritage Christian Fellowship in San Clemente, California. For more information, go to heritagesc.org. All right, so uh, so if you've been with us here last week, uh, Jared kind of started us off in a new series of Neighborhood Watch, and uh, and he kind of started to talk about the importance of why we are called to love our neighbors well, and tied it into the fact that the Lord commands to love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your might, and uh, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so uh, in the spirit of that, I thought I would share this morning as uh, so you guys are still getting to know me. Again, my name is Jay. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, just share with you guys one of my favorite neighbors and most neighborly experience I've ever had. It was uh, back in around like 1998, 1999. Um, I, I was uh, living in this apartment with my family. And, and so there was my house, and then there was a house that had been abandoned and just kind of empty for a few years. But right next to that house was my best friend. His name was Jimmy Congeni, uh, this red-haired kid, uh, freckles all over. And, and so it was summer, and so it was one of the days before, you know, the Internet. So what did we do? We went outside to play, and uh, and uh, we were going to ride our bikes, and I had my helmet on, my knee pads on, everything. I, I was ready to go, and my bike had a flat tire. And so me and Jimmy were sitting there because that was our only mode of transportation for the day. Our parents were at work. And, uh, and so we started brainstorming what we could do. I was prepped and ready to go. And we always wondered what was in that middle house that divided our houses so that we couldn't just open our windows and talk to each other. It had been abandoned. And we had talked about how there was all these stories of, of ghosts and people that lived in it. And it was all boarded up. And, and the door wasn't even there. It was literally just a piece of wood. And, uh, and you know, being a kid... Um, we wondered and we had questions on what was inside. And so uh, Jimmy, being my best friend and a great neighbor, had this brilliant idea to throw me through the window <laughs> to then be able to open the window for him. Um, and so since I had my helmet on, it made sense to me. So he threw me right on in and, uh, and we got to explore this like abandoned, broken old house. We ended up getting scared and running out, uh, thinking we heard a ghost or a homeless person that was like, bunkered up inside there. Um, but I'll never forget, because that was an awesome moment with my neighbor. Uh, and so just thought I would share that with you guys. But today, we are going to be covering um, a, a question that kind of continues on this series and delves a little bit deeper. For you see, I, I don't know about you guys, but after I heard Jared's message, I was pumped and ready to go. I downloaded the app that he was talking about, and, and I was so ready and wondering and asking myself the question, who is my neighbor. It's funny because in scripture, there's actually a man who goes to Jesus to ask him this exact thing. He goes up to God and Jesus Christ and he says, good teacher, who is my neighbor? The interesting thing that happens, that follows that we're going to be reading here is Jesus doesn't just give the man an answer. Rather, he gives him a story, a parable that answers not who is his neighbor, but how to neighbor. And today, that's what we're going to be covering. If we have one question, if, you, if someone afterwards says, hey, Jay spoke, I didn't get to make it, what did he speak on? It's pretty simple. We are searching today to answer the one question, how to neighbor. And as we read the Bible and get into God's word, we're going to see that it's a lot more to it than just a smile and a wave. And so would you guys pray with me as we come before the great God and King today, as we get into his word? Thank you. Dear God, we just thank you, Lord. Uh, for this morning, God, we thank you so much that, 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 Lord, you call us 
to return to our first love, Lord, to, to spend time with you, Lord, and that in that and through that overflow, God, you tie it directly to love others as ourselves. God, this is a hefty call. And Lord, this morning as we dig into this, Lord, may it be a part of our worship as we mentioned. God, may this be an opportunity for each and every one of us to just hear from you, God. Lord, I, I know and believe that you are not such a lazy God that you allow mere coincidences to happen. So if someone is listening to this here now in one of these chairs, God, if they're listening to this later on, that, Lord, you are doing something. You have something here for each and every one of us. So, God, would we just be open to hear what it is you have to say today? We thank you so much, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Luke chapter 10. That's where we're going to be today. Luke chapter 10. I'll also have um, the verses up here as well. Uh, Luke chapter 10. We're going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25. This is the parable. A lot of you guys may know this. If you've been around church for a while, you might know it as uh, the parable of the good Samaritan. I like to call it the parable of the compassionate Samaritan. And so I'm just going to read it, and you guys can follow along either on the screen or in your Bibles. But here's what it says. Uh, th- this is Jesus after he's, he's gathered around a crowd of people, and he's talking, and they're celebrating this moment because Jesus had just sent out these 72 two by two, and he says, go and, and tell others and, and go and share with them the good news that I've shared with you. And you know what? They actually went out and did it. And they come back and they all have this moment like, oh my goodness, like this is real. This is actually true what you're saying. People's lives are being changed. Houses are being restored. And they're having this celebratory moment. And in the midst of that, this takes place. Luke chapter 10, verse 23. Here's what it says. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, uh, and he said to him, sorry, I'm trying to find out my slides to make sure I click when you guys go. And he said to him, you have, uh, oh, stood in front of him and test, wait, yeah, there it is. I'm just going to start over. And he, behold, a lawyer stood up to him to test him, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place, saw him and passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, poured oil and wine. Then he sat him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proves to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? This is Jesus asking that question. And he, the lawyer, said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So, 
that's the entire story, the entire passage of what we're going to be reading today. I just want to go back now and start to break this down little by little here. And so one of the first things I kind of want to start off with and address is this motivation of the lawyer here. You see, it's kind of mixed here. And Luke's interpretation might at first seem a little confusing of what they're talking about. Because here we are having this celebratory moment. And the man does come to Jesus and he does actually call him like teacher, you know. He, he's actually coming and I think has an honest question here. But it's mixed because it's not, if that was it, okay, maybe, maybe we give this guy the benefit of the doubt. But the interesting thing as we read this is how they, is how they describe the man as a lawyer. Now, I know Peter is a retired lawyer, and he does an awesome job here, and he is not the most upstanding guy I could ever mention. But typically, what lawyers were in the Old Testament were very similar to kind of like how we understand them today. Another word or job or function of a lawyer was to be a scribe. And if you don't know what a scribe was, back in the Old Testament and New Testament here during the time of Jesus, we all kind of know or have heard at least the Pharisees and what they did and how they kind of hassled Jesus and constantly were scrutinizing him and trying to find a way to trick him. Well, a scribe could also be a Pharisee. A scribe was pretty much someone, like a lawyer, who knew the law very well and could write down legal documents that was either for marriage, property, or any type of crime that had been committed. And so they were, they were uh, to know God's law well to the point where they could write legal documents perfectly. And so these scribes, this lawyer here in particular, was given the job to monitor Jesus and see how closely did this man actually follow the law. Now this setup already seems so ridiculous when you think about it from, from our perspective, right? Jesus being who the law points to, Jesus being the one who fulfills the law in every way, shape, and form, is being scrutinized by someone who studied the law for a few years and now, and now is trying to like examine and really test Jesus on this. This would be like me Let's go back to like 1996, 1997, going to like a bounce house, jump house zone place and and bouncing on one of the things, dunking a basketball and then feeling that I now have the right to judge Michael Jordan on every slam dunk he does and do like, uh, really, Jordan, you could, you could work on that a little bit more, right? Like it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's like one morning after I make a really great piece of toast or make myself cereal, I'm now judging Chef Gordon Ramsay on how well he prepares a steak, right? Like it's just absolutely mind blowing ridiculousness that is being taken place here, that this lawyer could somehow judge Jesus, the one who the law points to, the one who fulfills the law, just because he might know some of the law. But Jesus doesn't take this personally. Instead, it's, it's really interesting to see the questions that he asks and how Jesus responds. And so looking at this and what he says, um, it, it's clear to kind of see that this leans more towards an antagonistic type of approach, that this lawyer is coming to Jesus asking these questions. So what does he ask? Well, the first thing he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, what is written in the law? He just says, hey, he, he knows who this guy is. He knows that he's a scribe. And so he asks him, hey, this is your profession, right? This is what you studied. This is what you get paid for by the temple. What is the law? What does the law say about this? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And so he, he quotes pretty much what Jared spoke on last week. This man quotes and goes like, man, I heard that. I know it. I know it's a law. Quoting from Leviticus 19. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he also asks another question. So the motivation of the lawyer's questions here. 
Behold, he says, uh, so we got that one. He goes on to say, uh, but desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus. So the first question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His second question is, and who is my neighbor? What must I do, and who is my neighbor? It's interesting, as we begin to look at these two questions, uh, his, his question of what must I do grants the importance of, like I said, Leviticus 19.18, which the Lord is talking to the people of Israelites at the time, and he's telling them, hey, you are to love each other. You are to care for one another. If one of you are in need, you are to care for your brother and sister. And anyone who converts in that way, you are to love them as well. And, but there is this kind of ambiguity that comes with Leviticus 19.18, um, and it's what he's also what is being exploited at this time in, in uh, the New Testament. In context, like I said, Leviticus 19 tells us that God is telling the people of Israelites, the chosen people of God, to love one another and to love anyone who converts to follow the one true God. And so in this time and era, now moving forward a couple hundred years into the time of Jesus, um, we have this time where because of Hellenistic imperialism and Roman occupation, there's all of these other people that now are, are living and residing alongside the people of God. And so the scribe is going, well, really, Leviticus 19, God was just talking about loving our neighbors and loving people who thought like us and think like us. And so right now, we're loving the people that come to the synagogue. We're loving the Jewish people that, that, that follow the one true God. So, so really, who is my neighbor? And, and so he's trying to play to that ambiguity. But during the time uh, and, and saying these are people who they needed to love. See, he didn't really care about who not to love. He was just like, where's the line, Jesus? Where is the minimum line of where I can go before I am no longer loving my neighbor? And, and that's why he follows up with the question, who is my neighbor? He's not asking to know who to love, but who not to love. Like I said, it's like, where is the line? And kind of playing like guess who neighbor edition. It's like, all right, well, do I have to love Cindy? No? Okay, good. Do I have to love Bob? No? All right. Do I have to love that guy who kind of believes some weird things? No? Okay, cool. And he's trying to, to narrow it down to the bare bones minimum. Because this legal expert hopes to redraw the line of friend and foe that Jesus, just a few chapters earlier in chapter 7 of Luke, Sermon on the Plain, you know, the Beatitudes, the, the moments where, where Jesus says, you know, blessed are you who are meek, who are poor in spirit, blessed are you, and, and right, he's doing all of those. And he also says there to love your enemies. Jesus dispels that there isn't this line, there isn't this hard-drawn line that you and me have to go, okay, well, I'm loving my neighbors and these people don't matter. Jesus go, no, no, love all all of them. And, and so hearing that and coming off of that, this guy's hoping that, that Jesus will somehow answer this or get tripped up or mix up his words. But Jesus answers to this question, just like the last one, will help this man see the need for a different approach to the question. See, at the crux of what he's asking here, that first question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is going, man, you're, you're already starting with the wrong premise. And in the same way, asking the question, who is my neighbor? He's going, again, it's important, yes, but it's not who because, because everybody is, but rather how. How to love your neighbor. Because this man is so bent on self-justification. 
He's looking for the ways that what he can do, how many times he can love people, how many times he can send over a baked good or, or help an old lady cross the street before the pearly gates of heaven will open up for him. But like many other contemporaries at the time of Jesus, a lot of other Jewish teachers, Jesus employs a parable in order to expound on the scriptural text of Leviticus 19.18. Jesus is going to tell this story in order to help the man see that he really shouldn't be asking, who is my neighbor and what must I do? But rather, how do I love my neighbor? And that's the only question that he's going to need when we get to the end of this. And so going back to this, um, just want to break down the parable here that, that Jesus is going to talk about. So, so uh, to kind of break this down in the simplest of terms, at the core of this, of this parable, it's about a man, a human being, in, and a neighbor in need. You see, this man, was, it says, was traveling, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. Oh, uh, let's go back one slide, sorry. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man, this is the parable now, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Let's just start there. Jesus keeps it uh, ambiguous. It's just a man. doesn't matter who he is. doesn't matter if he's a good man. doesn't matter if he's a bad man. He's just a man. He's just somebody who, who, who whatever you want to put on him, whatever makes you happy, just, just pretend that's him. Whoever the good guy, right? Good guy, good girl, whoever it is, like, it's just a man. But he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, people at the time who, who had made that journey, and again, being not too far from Jerusalem himself during this time, understood that there was this, like, massive incline between Jericho and Jerusalem. About 2,500 seats Jerusalem sat above sea level, and Jericho is in the Jordan Rift Valley about 800 feet below sea level. So that is about a 3,300 feet difference. Uh, and so the man is traveling down, thus to make the story more realistic, that it was kind of dangerous to begin with. That, that if he wasn't careful, he could start rolling down for about 3,000 plus feet. Uh, and if he lived through that, uh, it would be a miracle in and of itself. So this was a dangerous journey in the picture of violence on the road. And since travel in general, and especially travel on this particular road, was dangerous, uh, it, it just adds to the drama here. If this unknown man is treated so bad, right, he gets robbed by robbers, then we hear. The question that, that they must be thinking, that we could think, is how will he be treated by others that come along this dangerous path? An answer is quickly provided by the priests and the Levites, right? Because it says here, And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And again, remember, the scribe is like associated with these priests. He's associated among the ranks of them. So he goes, oh, here's, here's where the good part comes in. Here's where this man saves them and is going to be neighborly. But that's not the case. Because it says... The priest is going down the same road, and when he saw him, he passed by him on the other side. Brutal, man. But all of us have done that, right? You see somebody that you know in your life who, who we maybe would categorize as like extra grace people, someone who you're like, man, I know if I get in a conversation with them, I'm going to get drained, I'm going to spend the next hour here, and, and I'll admit it. I'll be the first one. Even as a pastor, I'm not immune to this. I'll see, not here, of course, because I love all you guys. I'm talking back in Chicago before I came here. But you see somebody out on the streets, or you see somebody, and you're just, you do one of these, you know? Like, you're just, you're right here, like, oh, really busy today, replying to all these emails, right? Or you do one of these, like, oh, hey, yeah, thanks. Yeah, dinner tonight, sure. We, we try to avoid them, and that's kind of the same situation that's being happened here. The man is broken, beaten here on the side of the road, and, and the, this priest is kind of like, all right, I'm just going to keep on walking and go. 
And so you're like, oh man, the, the hearers of this time establish this cadence between the priest and the Levite because then the Levite comes again, another one who is to, to know who's supposed to be so close to God, present these offerings and lead people. And this would be like saying like a pastor and a worship leader came by. And, and when the, the, the Levite came, when he came to that place and saw him, passed on the other side. And so Jesus is setting up this cadence, this rhythm here that, that we see that they came, they saw, and that they passed by on the other side. They came, they saw, and they passed by on the other side. Why? It's unclear. Jesus doesn't give a reason. Maybe they had somewhere to be. Maybe they didn't want to be concerned with like defilement of a body because that is a law. And dealing with a half-dead man might be kind of like iffy. Maybe they were off to do their religious duties, but again, Jerusalem was kind of that hub and main point, like their main place of work. And so them leaving that area usually meant that they were done doing their duties there and were back heading, traveling back home. And so that doesn't seem very likely, very doubtful that that they were off to do something more religiously important and to fulfill some religious duties. Meaning more likely uh, that that they just didn't want to be... bothered by this because by levitical law still these people were required to be obligated to bury a dead man to to care for an unintended corpse but they didn't regardless of of whatever reason whatever reason jesus wanted to put on here the reality is simple that in the face of actions there was no action from these men but then we get to this kind samaritan right And it says, but a Samaritan. Now, understand what a Samaritan was at the time is they weren't, right? Like I said, that Leviticus 19 passage seemed, according to this lawyer here, that only the people that believed God, that trusted in God, that followed the one true God, were the ones who are our neighbors, the ones that we are to love. And so here, now, according to to what he was believing and thinking, Jesus is bringing about this Samaritan, this person who generally didn't believe in God, who might have believed in in some of the Greek gods, that might have believed in some other gods, but but he didn't believe in... Yahweh, the one true God. And so it says that that person, a Samaritan, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. See, the interesting thing here, as we read this story, I know I've heard this before. And when I read the story, when I, when I first became a Christian at like 13, 14 years old, I remember reading this. The Gospels were kind of my bread and butter. That's like where I could stay because I couldn't really get into like all of Genesis. It seemed too long. I wasn't a reader. Leviticus was out of the question and Numbers and Deuteronomy was way too crazy for me to even try to consider. But I remember reading this story and thinking, wow. I'm like the good Samaritan. That's who I am. I'm the good Samaritan. I would never like leave a person dead on the ground. I would never like leave somebody in need. But the reality and truth is that Jesus is helping us to see you and me as well as the lawyer in this moment is that really you and me, we're not the Samaritan. Heck, we're not even the Levite or the priest. 
but rather the truth and reality of what Scripture tells us and what Jesus' core message taught us and reminded us of. What the law showed us is that you and me are more like the man beaten and stripped on the side of the road, unable to do anything about our bad situation, let alone help anybody else. See, remember the first question that the lawyer asked, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What are the things that I can be doing right here and now to make this better for myself? And, and Jesus is going, man, there's nothing you can do that, that you and me are like the, the person beaten on the side of the road. This man was half dead, scripture says. What can he do? Nothing. The dude's on an incline. He either has to try to roll down and die in that process or somehow try to crawl back up around another thousand to two thousand feet just to get back to town. Let alone he had no money. He had nothing of his own to be able to pay for medicine, to be able to pay for uh, bandages. Nothing. He was dead. And in the same way, Romans reminds us that we are dead in our sins. We are dead in our trespasses. This man was broken, naked, and left for dead. And it isn't until someone has compassion is the situation remedied. In the same way, the Samaritan then, if you and me are the man broken on the side of the road, well then who's the Samaritan? It's an image and a, rep- and a representation of God and his compassion for you and me. Because it isn't until then, right? Like you and me were dead in our sins. We couldn't help ourselves, let alone no one else, to help you and me and to help our situation at the time. But it is in that face and in the moment of inaction that God takes action. It's in that moment that when you and I are struggling and having hard times, we are down on ourselves. We see the mess of our lives that we make, that in the face of inaction, when no one else will help us, God takes action. And we see that rep, uh, represented here by the Samaritan who, who takes proper care of this beaten man and makes him better. It says here that, that he is compassionate the same way the Samaritan is in this parable by giving abundantly of himself. Because this parable is a direct reflection of God's faithful covenant. See, when God chose the Israelites, the people who he gave that Leviticus 19 law to, right? These people right here, that that it wasn't because they were so great. It wasn't because they were awesome. It was just because God decided to choose them and bless them. And the covenant could basically be summed up in this. It's what Timothy says later on. It says that even when you and I are faithless, God remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. I'll say that again, that when you and I are faithless, when our faith is low, when we don't trust in God, when we put just enough in to this vending machine of God to get just enough back of what we need, that then when we stop loving God, when we stop caring about God, we stop singing with passion, when we stop loving God, spending time with him, that God says, man, it breaks the heart of God. But even when you and I are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. See, in the Old Testament, God chose his people. And he said, I swear, you know, and, and you and I, we shouldn't swear. But when we do, we say things like, man, I swear to God. I swear to something higher than me. Or I swear on my mother's grave, right? Something we care about. Well, you know what Jesus said? What, what God says, God the Father, when he makes his covenant with his people, he goes, I swear to myself. How freaking cool is that? There is nothing greater than the God that we serve because he goes, I swear to myself, there is nothing greater. There is nothing more important. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be there for you. And I will be faithful even when you are faithless. So it's only then being restored are we able 
to imitate our God and do anything for our neighbor that is ever truly loving. Again, remember, the question we are answering is how to neighbor well. Well, this is the first step in that, is that acknowledgement of our reality and our situation of who God is. And here it is. This is the key part, the crux of this whole parable. Because Jesus isn't giving us this parable so that you and I can begrudgingly hold to some moral uh, uh, moral obligation of loving our neighbors well. It's not that we're supposed to like go around and like be mad and be like, hey, let me tell you about Jesus because I have to. But rather, let me tell you about Jesus because I get to. But rather, we love our neighbors out of an understanding and the reality of what God has done for us. And if I could be so bold, well, it's not really me because these are, you know, Luke's words and, and Jesus is the one who said them. So don't, don't shoot me. I'm just the messenger here this morning. But what Jesus and Luke are getting at in all this is this. This is the, the bottom line of everything I have to say this morning. Is that true hearing is authenticated in doing. I'll say that again. True hearing, true understanding is authenticated in doing. It's one thing to interpret the law correctly, right? Like this man, he might have had some of the points correct. He did actually know the law of Leviticus 19 and how the situation, God was speaking to the Israelites, telling them how to to be a community and how to love each other. But he interpreted it correctly, but he also didn't take and have the wisdom to apply it biblically. Because it's a whole, it's one thing to interpret the law correctly, but a whole other to internalize it and perform it rightly. In short, love for our neighbor flows out of a radical love for God. Returning to our first love has been something that has been spoken a lot about around here, especially in the start of 2020, right? From the pulpit to our small groups to conversations that are had right here in the lobby. Returning to our first love was something that was spoken over the church, spoken uh, in leadership, and and it was something that that we have been keenly aware of, this idea to return to our first love. Well, this is an overflow of that, that if we are returning to our first love, if we're actually spending time with God, forsaking all others, and actually spending this real time with him, loving him, that the outpour of that and the flow of that naturally will be that we will love our neighbors well. This is a fruit of one pursuing to love God and return to our first love. Don't hear me wrong on this. This is not a work-based salvation like the lawyer was asking. This isn't self-justification. It's not, hey, I will go and do this thing and love others for the sake of loving them uh, and and be a good neighbor. And when I do X amount of good things, uh, you know, deeds for my noisy neighbors, to my loud neighbors, to my uh, neighbors that, that are just to themselves, that only then will the doors open. That's not what Jesus is saying. So after understanding this reality, uh, th- that's the start, right? But how then do we actually love our neighbors? Well, look at verse 37 with me. Because Jesus asks the lawyer, the scribe, this question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He's asking the lawyer, and he says, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. The lawyer recognizes that mercy characterizes this Samaritan's behavior. 
one that is moved by compassion. And as a result, this is what distinguishes this traveler from the other two. It's not the fact that the other two are Jewish and he's not. It's not that they love the one true God and this man didn't. It's not that the other two people had these pretty high religious ranks. And at the time, that's like being a high, you know, like governing a person, someone who was a leadership and had importance in society and that the Samaritan didn't. We don't even know what he was. But what characterizes him and what makes him stand out and individualizes him is his compassion that leads to action in the face of inaction. Just like what God had done with our salvific care for you and me. But what exactly did this guy do? Well, if we go back, we see a couple things here. First off, when he saw him, he had compassion. There's this giving of emotions, this giving of himself. Where he goes, man, I have a heart for this person. I made room in my heart. I don't just care. My heart isn't given to just where I'm going or to the people that I need to talk to or the tasks that I've been given. But rather, I'm giving of my emotions the ability to be interrupted with his heart. But that's not all, right? That's the first one. He has compassion. Secondly, verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. You know how long that takes? I mean, like, we read that in, like, less than a minute, right? But the reality of how long that takes, especially if someone's, like, half dead, as Scripture says, the man is keeled over, unable to move or really tend to himself. I don't know about you guys, but but I once, like, dragged a friend who fainted. Um, before I was a Christian, uh, I did a lot of stupid stuff. And one of the things, as a kid, 19, or not 19, like, 9, 10, 11 years old, I remember, uh, this is pre-Christian Jay, playing baseball, and and uh, and there was this concession stand that had all these snacks and stuff, and it was a hot summer day, and we realized that we didn't bring any snacks, we didn't bring any drinks, but we knew that that in this little concession stand, there were drinks and other things in there, and, uh, and it was closed, and so we couldn't buy anything, and so uh, this group of, like, eight or nine of us decided, well, we'll just take it like if we can get in we'll take these drinks and and maybe we'll pay them back later i don't really know we were kids we weren't thinking about it and so we were able to open the the like window the half counter window just enough to squeeze our smallest friend through from to open the door and, and we just started picking out and eating in there and i know that's horrible and i feel bad about it now but i can't do much um and I say all this, there's a point to this story, I promise. Um, because we, we went and, <laughs> and, uh, and we actually started hearing sirens. And so, uh, being kids, we thought someone called the cops on us. So we sprinted, uh, as quickly as we could with guts full of like Twizzlers and Sour Patch Kids and Gatorade. Um, and one of my friends who lived the closest to that place, uh, is like, my mom's gonna find out. She's gonna tell, we're dead, we're dead, we're dead. And he ended up puking all the stuff out and then fainting on the ground. And, uh, and so here I am trying to drag my friend into a backyard. Uh, and the cops probably weren't even looking for us. There's probably just something else. Um, all that to say, I understand how long it takes to drag a dead body to tend to a dead person who is not functioning or able to help in the situation. And so there's this giving of time, this bounding up his wounds that we see here, able to be interruptible in his time. So the first one we said is interruptible with his heart, the giving of emotions. Second one, interruptible with his time, the giving of, of his, his time, his, his, uh, his moments, his minutes here. There's one other thing here that, that we should notice that, that characterizes his compassion here, and it's verse 35. And the next day he went out and took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. 
You know how crazy that is? Like, th- th- that's a lot of money in the Old Testament, in the New Testament times here. Um, but it also says that he was giving of his resources. He was able to be interruptible with his money. Are you guys starting to see a pattern here? Giving of emotions, giving of the time, giving of resources, able to be interruptible with his heart, able to be interruptible with his time, able to be interruptible with his money. Because if the call to love a neighbor well is to intimidate, to mirror Jesus to them, then here's the truth, and this is something the Lord has given me this last month that, that has just stuck with me and reminded me of this truth. That you and I will never look more like Jesus than when we give. You and I will never look more like Jesus than when we give. How is this so? Well, think about it even just from a biblical perspective. Whether you're a Christian or not, the most common well-known verse in the entire Bible that you see at baseball games, at sports events, or concerts, or anything else. People that hold up signs that read out what? John 3.16. And if someone said, I'll give you a million dollars if you can quote me a biblical verse, that might be your first one, maybe only secondary to that Jesus wept, since it's the shortest verse in the Bible. But what does that verse say? For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only son. This idea of giving means that we will never look more like Jesus than when we give. And I know if I was the one hearing this for the first time, hearing somebody come up here and say these things, I would like to think to myself, but you don't know my neighbors. What if they take advantage of me? And my response to that is people can't steal what they are freely given. People cannot steal what is freely given from us. But we have to be willing to be interruptible and ready and willing to give when God presents that moment to us. And to do this well, there is this avenue of discipline that needs to be taken. Discipline with our hearts. A discipline with our time. And this is a hard one, even for myself. Discipline with our resources. A little background knowledge uh, from me. I've been a pastor for the last seven years in in a not-so-great area of Chicago. And so going into it, I I was fresh out of college. Um, I was was, uh, 21 years old at the time and, and, uh, you know, broke college student. And I got this job, and I was an associate pastor, and I was so excited. But the reality of the situation was for the first three years, I basically was making less than part-time working a full-time ministry job. And then even when I did go full-time, we didn't even make enough money to pay our rent. I had to work other jobs. I had to find other avenues. And so now being in sunny California in St. Clemente, being able to make a little bit more and to be able to have a sustainable life with my wife, there is a fear of that. God, I don't want to be interruptible with my resources. I just got them. But the question God is asking you and me this morning are, are these things that we are regularly giving to God first and foremost? Because without that, we are still like the man on the side of the road, unable to help anyone else. Are our hearts his? Are they right with him? How about our time? Or is it just Sunday morning that we're barely fitting into our schedules? And if those two things aren't right, I find it really hard to believe. I know it would be hard for myself to to give of any resources that I have to be a blessing with them. 
And I know this is hard, but it's something God has made a way for us, us to do. And I can say that with confidence because look at Jesus' last words here. Verse 37, after, he, after the lawyer realizes that it's mercy that characterizes this man, Jesus says to him, you go now and do likewise. God would never give you and I a task that we could not complete. This is spoken and written in the imperative. This is not a suggestion, that means. This is not an option for our Christian life, but rather it's a command. It's an order. Like a sergeant giving his troops an order here. This is not something to be questioned, not something to be doubted. This isn't something we can do when we feel like it, but rather this is a call, an order on our lives. So, where does that leave us then? How do we answer the question, how to neighbor well? How do we start? How do we stand out? Well, the same way the Samaritan did is, is be compassionate, be merciful. This is number one. And make sure to make room to be able to do that in your life. That means we need to be prepared to give and be interrupted. And we start by getting our hearts right with God here and now. It's hard to imitate God's love and compassion when we aren't seeing and knowing and growing in that love ourselves. Maybe for others this morning, it's more about our time here. Our hearts are right with God. We have a great relationship with Jesus, but we just feel like there's, there's just no time. 24 hours is not enough time in a day to rest, to spend time with my family, to work a job, to, to, to come to church. What more could I really fit into my schedule? And we think that we are so busy. But the reality is, if I were to ask anyone in this room, hey, what are you binging right now? Hey, what's good to watch? I need something. I think everyone in here could tell me something. If I were to say, hey, what are you doing the rest of today? Oh, I'm resting. I'm getting ready for work, the work week. Oh, I'm doing. And the reality is, I think this reveals that you and I have more time than we give ourselves credit for. Lastly, make room, some in this room find it hard to be compassionate when we walk around like this. Like I said, when it comes to our resources, it's so hard to be blessed by God, to receive a gift from God when our fists are closed and clenched because we are holding on to the little bit that God has already blessed us with. And God's going, I want to do more with that. I want to bless you in that. So, so open up. I won't force you, but there's this, this journey I want to take you on. And this isn't a prosperity gospel message, not at all. But rather, when we trust and know our gods, our God, it allows us to be open and have open palms. Say, Lord, whatever you want. God, whatever it means. I've never known anyone who's, who's went hungry because they gave too much. Because we will never look more like Jesus than when we give. Secondly, on how to neighbor well. Right? So the first one is have compassion. How to have compassion? Do those three things. Be disciplined in our heart. Spend time with the Lord. Be disciplined in our time. Make room in our schedule to be interruptible. Uh, and, and thirdly, be, uh, be disciplined in our resources, in our finances, in the abilities of things that you and I have to offer this world. The man didn't have a lot, right? Again, the man wasn't named as this great person of great status and power. He didn't have resources of, of men and women to come help on his disposal. He wasn't a doctor, but what he did have was some ointment. He had some oil, he had some wine, and he had an animal to place the man on. And that's all the man had, and he was so willing to give it. So that's number one. Let's practice in discipline 
uh, the disciplines of compassion. Secondly, on how to neighbor well. This is the big one. Is we actually do it. Because hearing is authenticated in doing. I was talking with our youth community here, the junior high and high school kids, uh, about this not too long ago. Uh, that is my hope and my prayer after Wednesday nights that the kids don't just go, oh man, you're such a great speaker. Oh man, that was a really good message. And then another kid go, yeah. And then they go home and do nothing about it because in my mind, that's worse than almost not hearing the message at all. Because you see, when we think that we get it at that moment, but we don't actually do something about it, we lose it. And it just becomes another series, another Sunday morning. And when that topic comes back around, we feel like we've already been there and done that, even though we haven't done anything. Even though nothing outwardly or inwardly has actually changed in us. But imagine with me for a second here, just this moment, that after today, that for those of us in this room that that hear this message, that receive it, and are like, yeah, I get it. I want to be disciplined with my heart. I want to be disciplined with my time. I want to be disciplined with my resources. That that we actually didn't just go, oh man, that was such a good message. But we actually went out and did something. And it wasn't because there was a hashtag put out by Heritage. It wasn't because we wanted our neighbors to sign something. It, It was literally just because we heard the message. We realized the reality of our situations. And we go, man, God, you're so good. I have to do something. I know for me that my neighbors would probably think I'm insane and kind of weird and unusual. Like, wait, this isn't some part of like some mandatory community service, like (laughs) that you're doing this and talking to me. You don't want me to sign something for you or do something. But as Christians, it should be weird that this is weird. Right? That this isn't the norm, that we don't hear God's word and then go, oh man, that's awesome. I need to do something. And then we go out and do it, but rather we come back together after a week and go like, oh yeah, that was a good message. Oh, what'd you do with it? Oh, talked about it with a couple people in like a small group, maybe, if I made time for it. And this should sadden us. That the norm isn't that that was a great message, that was so encouraging, God really spoke, and then we go out and do something that we sit and do nothing. But think about it right now. Who is actually doing something for your neighbors that isn't getting paid, that isn't doing it because they need something in return? And I'd venture to guess it's probably the same people that are doing something for you guys right now. Nobody. (laughs) You and I have this unique opportunity as the church to come alongside our neighbors to love them well. Because the good Samaritan stood out among the three because he had compassion that led to action in the face of inaction. Is that not the world that you and I live in? Everybody wants to complain, but nobody wants to do. We live in a world where we complain about action, but we live in the face of inaction. So we don't have to wait for a program or a leader to tell us what to do, but we as the body can go and do something because we are tired of just hearing and doing nothing about it. Because here's the truth, and, and I'll just be honest, if we aren't really doing anything with this, then we're just wasting our time. Why are we here if we don't actually live this out? Because hearing is authenticated in doing so how does this end as I got a few minutes here left with us? It's this, it's, it's that. It isn't clear, right? This is the end. There's nothing more. 
We just get this command in the imperative from Jesus to go and do likewise. And we don't actually get to hear the response of the lawyer and what he has to say or think about this message. But I imagine one of two things happened that day. The lawyer was faced with a decision in the face of truth. And it's the same one you and I are facing right now. Either A, he hears God's words, receives them, and then actually went out and did something about it. And one day, those of us who choose likewise will get to rejoice with him in heaven and go, man, I read about you. I know the decision you had because I sat in a room where we talked about it and we heard it and God pressed it on my heart that right now I have to make the same call. That's option number one. Or number two, he heard God's word and he didn't really receive them but walked away sad at the reality of what it would cost him. He didn't want to give of his time. He didn't want to give of his heart. He didn't want to give of his resources and all of what he had to give up. In trying to preserve his life that he had, he walked away from the very one who is life himself and gives it so freely. And so he would model like that of the rich young ruler who asked a similar question. But when Jesus said, go and sell all your possessions, said he walked away sad because of what he would have to give up. And that's the choice that you and I face this morning. We've heard the word just like him. We've read the parable. We know how to neighbor well, but it comes with the cost. And in a moment, I, I, I want to close us, and I'm going to invite the worship team up at this time. They're going to play in the background here in a moment, uh, just some music, while, while you and I just take this moment. Because... For some of you, you are so ready. You are tired of just hearing the word and you're like, yeah, I don't want to wait for a small group leader. I don't want to wait for someone to come and tell me what to do. I don't want to wait for a hashtag to be created. I don't want to wait till Heritage does a big event. And so you're just ready and willing to go and tell others about Jesus and to love your neighbor and neighbor well. And I think that's amazing. I want you guys to hear this, that I think God's going to do something really amazing through that if you follow through. And so I want you to, I want us to pray in that moment if that's you right now for strength to follow through and maybe even some direction on how to approach it. I know one of the biggest things in temptation Satan always does is he makes us in this moment feel like, yeah, we could do this, we could do this, we could do this. And then we leave outside these doors and we think about it for a moment or we don't actually do something right away. And then we're like, oh, was that really God? Or was that just like some bad indigestion that, that I was feeling that morning? But let's pray for strength for you, for follow through and approach. For others, maybe you are getting tripped up on one of these things, giving of time, giving of money, giving of resources. But you're feeling convicted and you know what's right, but it just seems so hard to get there. To not be selfish with these things and get it. And I get it. Trust me, I do. But all I can say in this moment is can you just give this next moment as, as we play and as there's music in the background, just say, God, will you help me with this? I'm not in that place. And, and if we're real with God, God can work with real, but he won't work with fake. So can we just be real with God for a moment about that? Can you ask him to speak to you in this moment? And I really believe that God really does have something here for you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening right here and now. So let's take a few moments and let's, let's start with that time one and give these next few moments for God. And lastly, if you're someone new here for the first time listening in, kind of exploring, unsure of this whole Christianity thing or our church, please keep exploring. God's word says, seek and you will find me. Knock and the door will be open for you. So I encourage you to come back next week, even if you didn't like my message. 
I'm not usually the one speaking. They usually stick me up in a room with the junior high and high school kids. So don't worry. Thank you, you don't for have to listen to me for like a month. We hope you tune in next week. For more information, go to heritagesc.org.